You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. In the weeks leading up to Christmas, we have been taking a look at a part of the Christmas story that uh, either people don't know about or they tend to forget about. And this event took place just 45 days after the birth of Jesus when Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem. And while they were there, they encountered two individuals. They encountered Simeon and Anna. So the last two Sundays, we've considered a phrase uh, that is attached to each one of these two individuals. But today, as we wrap up our look at this part of the Christmas story, I want to step back and consider what this story says about us. The fact that this story is in the Bible says something very important about us. In the culture of the day, Simeon and Anna were were insignificant. Uh, They would have been faces in a crowd and names known by only a few people who were close to them. They were average people, like us. So the question is, how did they make it into the greatest story ever told? Why now, 2,000 years later, are we talking about them? How are their names something that is recorded in the pages of the Bible? It turns out they were not the only obscure and unknown characters in the Christmas story. I mean, Mary and Joseph were also very much unknown. Uh, The shepherds would have been forgotten faces in pretty much any crowd. In fact, if you step back even beyond the Christmas story and you look through the pages of the Bible and you read about the characters and the people that make it into the Bible, you will discover that most of the people in the Bible were not a list of the who's who of their time. They would have been a list of the who's that of their time. They were not well-known people. Their names would have never been selected by their contemporaries but their names were selected by God. Why? Well, I believe it's because the story of God that is recorded in the pages of the Bible has a major theme to it. And the theme is this. It's about God's great love for us, his tremendous value for us, not just the impressive us, but all of us. And so God would often choose obscure people to tell the story of his great value and love for all of us. And I think the forgotten day of Christmas is one part of the great story, and the often forgotten people of this great story remind us of the often forgotten value that we have because of the value that God has given us. I mean, it's pretty easy for us to end most days with Um, a wrong estimation of our own value. It's easy to forget how valuable we are or why we're valuable. I mean, we're just one out of about 8 billion people on this planet. We stand a few feet tall, but we look up at a universe that's measured not in feet, but in light years, a vast universe. On a clear day, we can see for miles, but we can't see anywhere close to the world. The world is 25,000 miles in circumference. Add to those physical realities the dismissive way that people tend to treat us, and we are often left to feel rather small and rather insignificant. And so in order to enhance our value, we, we try to add something to our life, some things to our life, to enhance our value. We may add more money or more likes on Instagram, 
or more fashion or more accomplishments. We might try to be funnier or more intelligent or more attractive or more athletic. I mean, if you want to trend online, you need to be something more impressive. It doesn't matter really what kind of more you pick as long as you're weirder or sexier or grosser or funnier than others, and then you will trend. But these add-on features to a life and the many more that we choose, they, they're never enough to establish our value. We never have a sense that we've added enough to answer the question of how important we really are. And that's because our value is intrinsic. It is not extrinsic. What I mean by that is our value comes from who we are on the inside, not from anything we add to ourselves from the outside. Now, the reason Jesus was born in Bethlehem is because he was from the line of David. And David is another one of those surprising people in the Bible. He was an obscure member of an obscure family. And then to everyone's shock and surprise, God chose him to be the king of Israel. And he became the greatest king Israel ever had. And God inspired him to write much of the Old Testament portion of the Bible. Most of the Psalms, the largest book in the very center of the Bible, were inspired by God through the pen of David, through his mind. And in Psalm 139, God inspired David to write one of the most amazing formulas that speak to the intrinsic value of all of us. And in that psalm, God inspires David to describe three key facts about all of us that add up to equal our real value. So on this Sunday before Christmas, we're going to look through those three facts in Psalm 139. You know, Jesus is the star of the Christmas story. But we, you and me, all of us, we are the reason for the Christmas story. And so if we enter into this Christmas season and we have forgotten, not just the forgotten day of Christmas, but we have forgotten the point of Christmas, the value that God has for us and the value that we have because of that, then we're going to miss really the whole point of Christmas. We may remember the facts of the story, but we'll, we'll forget the point of the story. So let's look at these three facts out of Psalm 139. Fact number one, God knows you. To be forgotten is to be insignificant. People forget who you are. That doesn't speak to your value. It speaks to, at least in their eyes, a lack of value for you. But it turns out, while we may be forgotten by a lot of people, or not known by a lot of people, we are known by God. And that is the most important person to know us of all. Psalm 139, 1 through 6 says this, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit, when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind 
and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. So let's think our way through what is being said here. Starts out with the statement, you have searched me, Lord. Now, I search because I don't know. I search for something online because I'm trying to learn something. I search for something that I, I, I don't understand. But God knows everything, so why does he search you and me? The Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language, and the Hebrew word that's used here for search means to test. It's the information that's, the knowledge that's gained out of a test. And a test reveals what is true of a person. Now, God knows me. There's nothing new about me that any test would reveal that he doesn't already know. And one of the things that God knows about me, and he knows about you, is he knows what needs to be worked on, what needs to change in our lives. Sometimes we're aware of those things, but oftentimes we are not really clear on what needs to be changed. We don't have an accurate view of ourselves. So a test comes, and I get a chance to see, to know something that God already knows. Now, why does God go to all the trouble of administering tests, of searching me and searching you? Well, it's because he knows what we often forget, and that is that the real treasure to be found in this life is who we become, not what we do or what we acquire. And without testing, we will never have the chance to grow because we won't know what needs to change. Goes on to say, you, God, you know when I sit and when I rise. You discern my going out and my lying down. You know, at the end of most days, my wife, Rebecca, wants to know about my day. And she'll say what you probably hear often if you're married. What happened today? Tell me about your day. And I'll tell her something, and then she says, well, so what else? She wants to know what's happened from my going out when I left to when I go to sleep, my lying down. No detail is too small from what I did sitting to what I did standing. Why? She loves me. There's no other explanation for that. She is that interested in my life. She wants to know everything that's going on that's important in my life. And it's the same with God, but with God, it's, of course, not about the data because he knows the data. It's about me, his love for me. But it turns out God isn't just watching what I do. He is listening to what I think. You perceive my thoughts from afar. He's listening intently to everything I think. Now, whenever someone asks me to tell them what I am thinking, I feel valued by that person. If they're just talking and they're just telling me what they think and they have no interest in what I think, I don't feel very valued. And so God himself is not going to learn information from us, but he listens to what we're thinking because of our great value to him. 
So you add up all of this watching that God does and all of this listening that God does, and what's, what's the conclusion? You are familiar with all my ways. You know the patterns of my life. The root of familiar is family. When you live in a family, you become acquainted with the patterns of those living with you. God knows me like my family does. Well, even more than my family does. And part of what that means is he's not shocked by me. He's not shaking his head thinking, there he goes again. No surprise, he's doing what Bevan does. He's not surprised by me. In fact, he knows me so well that he knows what I'm going to say before even I do. It says, before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You know, I, I, I know my wife so well that sometimes I know what she's going to say before she says it. Now, I know some of what she's going to say. I mean, a few things. I can just kind of tell when she's getting ready to tell a joke. I can tell when she's getting ready to respond a certain way just because we've lived together for 37 plus years. So I know her. But I know some of what she's going to say. God knows everything completely. So what does God do with all of this knowing, with all of this knowledge of us? It says, you hem me in behind and before. What does that mean? Well, to hem is to surround and limit the movement of. That's the definition of hem. You may think of the primary word, uh, or the way we use hem now is in, in sewing for a garment. So the hem is the edge of a garment. It's the border of where that garment ends. And this is the picture of what God does with us. He sets the borders around our life. He hems in our life. He's at work at the behind and the before edges of time and guiding us towards some things and guiding us away from other things. Yes, we're making our choices and everyone's making their choices, but in a way that none of us can fully understand, God is in charge of all of that and he's hemming. He's putting borders and boundaries around my life. Now, there are no surprises to God about what happens in my life. For me, a lot of it's a surprise. But nothing's going to sneak up on God. Every new situation that I encounter has been allowed by Him. Otherwise, it wouldn't have got past the hem. It wouldn't make it into my life. So what that means practically is the future may seem scary and overwhelming to me, but God has gone before me. Back to the Christmas story. Why in the last month of her pregnancy did Joseph and Mary travel 80 miles by donkey from their home in Nazareth to Bethlehem? No one would do this. In this day, no one would do it. Back then, definitely no one would do it. Travel was not what it was like, what it is like now. You don't, clearly with the manger scene, you, you, no room in the inn, you don't make reservations ahead in the ancient world. You, you can't arrange things in advance. So why would they travel? Well, it wasn't because they wanted to. 
It wasn't because they were looking for a little getaway out of Nazareth before the baby came. No, that was not it at all. It wasn't safe, and it wasn't smart for them to travel at this point. The only reason they went to Bethlehem and took all that risk is because Caesar had ordered that a census be taken. And because they were of the line of David, Bethlehem is where they had to go to register. And the timing meant they had to go now, the worst possible time. Now, Caesar, he didn't know about Mary and Joseph. Again, they were no names in the empire that he ruled. He didn't know that he was forcing them to go to Bethlehem in the last month or two of her pregnancy. He didn't know that. If he did, he wouldn't have cared. He didn't know about the prophecies that said the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. It wasn't on his mind that, oh no, he's, he, they're in Nazareth. They, I've got to get them to Bethlehem quick. That wasn't at all in the mind of Caesar. But God was hemming behind and before. And Mary and Joseph, right on schedule, took a crazy journey in the ancient world and arrived in Bethlehem just in time for the birth. Now, if you want to try to figure out how God did that, you've got a mental capacity way beyond me. But God hems us in behind and before. But that's not the only thing that God does with this knowledge. He says, you lay your hand upon me. This is not in the patting your shoulder kind of way. This is the holding onto your hand kind of way. It's what parents do when they're walking with their kids on unstable ground or the kids start to run into traffic. They take a hold of them. We lay our hands on our small kids because there's a good chance they'll trip or they'll fall or they'll run into danger. You see, it turns out the ground that we walk on is very unstable in this world. So God lays his hand on us. He holds us to stabilize us. We are constantly looking for a way to stabilize the ground under us, to pave it, to, to make it stable. But no matter what we do, the ground is still unstable. And that's because true stability in this life comes from above, not down below. It comes from the hand of God holding on to ours. That's the only stability that we have. So what's the summary of this knowledge? David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Modern translation, this is mind-blowing, is what David is saying. What's so wonderful and lofty about all this? Well, just think about it. The level of thought and attention can only mean one thing. God loves you. You have tremendous value. God loves me. The one in eight billion me? The small little speck in the vast universe? Me? You? Yes. That's one fact. Fact number two, God is with you. Verse 7 through 12, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go 
up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. What is he saying? Well, let's, let's think our way through it. Starts out by saying, where can I get away from God? Where, where can I go from his presence? The simple answer is nowhere. There's no distant star that I can travel to, if I could. We get to Mars, God will be there. There's no ocean depths. The bottom of the trenches that they didn't even know about then, God's there. There's no time of day, morning or night. You know, God doesn't take a nap. No time of day. There's no faraway island that I can get away from God on. Now, the question you have to ask when you read this is, why would David be asking this? Why, why would David or anyone try to get away from God? Well, the answer for all of us, we know this, is sin. Sin carries the illusion that God isn't present. In order for us to sin, at least in that moment, we have to say, what God? We're either forgetting about God in that moment, or we're knowingly turning our back away from God and running away from Him. It requires, sin requires you to put God out of your mind at least. But God's love for us is not diminished by our sin. It turns out He follows. Because He's, well, He's already there. And so once we turn to Him and ask for Him to be our Father and take hold of our lives, He never lets us go. Again, it talks about the hand of God. Even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Even when I'm running from God? And even when disaster strikes and the light becomes night around me. When the circumstances of life go dark and we think, surely the darkness has hidden us from God. We must be hidden from God. We... We must be forgotten because things are so dark. And if he saw us, he would remove the darkness. But we forget that the purpose of this life is to grow us. And there's some of the really most precious, valuable things of faith that God wants to grow in our heart that can only grow in the dark. So he is there. And that's because the darkness isn't dark to God. We walk into the dark and God, God doesn't scramble to find a flashlight like I do. The night shines like the day. The darkness is as light to him. For God, there, there is no night, there is no day, there is no hidden, there is no unhidden. There's only him and us. And nothing will loosen his grip. Again, it's the grips, grip that we use with our young kids. You know, they reach out to us. Sometimes we just have to grab a hold of them. But the strength of that grip doesn't originate from their arms and their hands. It originates from our arms and our hands. And it's the same with God. They may run or fall, but we hold on tight. God says, your right hand will hold me fast. 
even when I'm trying to wiggle out like two-year-olds do. What do you do as a parent? You clamp down. That's what God does. Oh, no, you don't. You're not getting away from me. That's fact number two. God is with us. Fact number three, God created you. Our culture is not so sure about this right now. And so our culture is not so sure about their value. And it shows up in lots of ways. But here's what God inspired David to write, verses 13 through 18. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. So let's think through this. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. For all of us as humans, there are two parts to us. There is the inside part, and then there's the outside part. There's the soul, and there's the body. And they are listed in this creation order for a reason. I love how the message translation puts it. You shaped me first inside, then out. Why inside first? Because that's the very core of who we are. That's us. Our body will die, but we won't cease to exist. Because God created us inside, then out. That's why it says, your eyes saw my unformed body. Before we had a body, God saw us. The deep and eternal us. Now, we can only see the visible person. When we look at each other, we, we can only see what's visibly true of you and what's visibly true of me. And therefore, we tend to make way too much out of how we look. We value how we look way more than is really true of our value. And if we get close to someone, if we really get to know someone, we build a friendship or we marry somebody, then over time we get to see more than the physical them. We, we get to know who they are on the inside. But God sees who we are really on the inside. This is the first and primary us. And what that means is that the, the center of our value is based on not how we look or even in what we do, but who we are on the inside. And the inside part is what makes us pretty unique and pretty special in all of the world. 
And so this is a truth that you need to accept from this. This is the implication. We are never diminished by what is taken from us, and we are never improved by what is added to us. We may feel better or feel worse, but that feeling does not indicate the truth about our value. That's who we are on the inside. But don't dismiss the outside part. It's not irrelevant. It's not just a mere receptacle. The outside part's pretty amazing as well. We are, as it says, fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully means awe-inspiring. Something you might be tempted to bow and worship. And sometimes we worship what is visible. Wonderful means to be extraordinary and unique. You know, we can share common traits with each other, especially if we're part of the same family, but each of us is a -a one-of-a-kind, hand-woven creation of God. We are not machine-made. We are handmade. When we were born... It was, as, it was like we were emerging from the depths of the earth to be seen for the first time. But long before any eyes saw us, God had been weaving us together with exact precision. No part of us is an oversight. So David says, I praise you, God. The implication is, not me, I don't praise myself. I, I praise you, God. You created me. It would be ridiculous for me, for me to take a bow about some aspect of how I appear. In the same way, it would be awful for me to be critical about how I look, some part of how you made me. I praise you, God, for the way you've made me. And then he says this interesting phrase, I know this full well. The the word that's used here for know is the kind of knowledge that you gain because of great diligence. It's the kind of knowledge that you have to work to hang on to. The, The word that's used here implies that this knowledge can be easily forgotten. It's very easy for us to forget how amazing it is that God created us inside and out and to think of ourselves that way. We forget this. And so we need to bring this to mind with great regularity. Now, not only did God give us an amazing body to house our souls, he also gave us a certain number of days in which to use this body here on earth to impact all of eternity. This is a unique window of time. We all have a set amount of days. How many days? I don't know. But amazingly, God does. Listen to this sentence again. All the the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You know what the word ordained means? To set apart for God's holy purpose. For me to become a pastor of a church, I needed to be ordained. Turns out I'm not the only ordained one. Every one of you are called by God to serve his holy purpose in this day. You don't know if you've got tomorrow. You've got today. 
So now let's put an equal sign on the formula of our great and eternal value before God. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake, I'm still with you. I remember when I was first starting to date Rebecca, and it was pretty clear that I was way more interested in her than she was interested in me. At least that was my perception. And I still remember a moment when we hadn't talked maybe for a week or so, and we saw each other and we had a conversation, and she asked a follow-up question to something that I had told her the last time. And I remember my heart going, oh, she's been thinking about me? There's hope. Because if someone's thinking about me, that means they remember me, they value me, and that's the precursor to eventually loving me. Her thoughts were precious to me because it meant that she at least liked me. We think about what we value. If you go by the vast sum of thoughts that God has about us, as it says here, more than the grains of sand (laughs) in the sea, I don't know how many that is. That's a lot. If you measure it by that, there's just no denying how precious we are to God. We often stop thinking about God, but He never stops thinking about us. His thoughts about us are 24-7. I mean, we go to sleep and we dream, but when we wake up, God has been thinking about us and He is still thinking about us. What's amazing is God doesn't need us. He's not dependent on us. He just loves us. So now that we've looked at how God adds up our significance, our great value, I want you to listen to the whole thing. I want to read through all together these 18 verses. And my hope is that whatever's on your mind, whatever's going on, the world would just kind of fade away And you would hear these words as if God was standing right in front of you and you could see his face in all of its glory and you could hear these words in the depths of your soul. So if it would help you close your eyes while I read this, fine. If you want to read along with me as I read out loud, fine. But listen to what God says about you and about me. You have searched me Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, 
Well, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake, I'm still with you. I hope you heard the voice of God. Because these are the words of God. Most people don't know this. Or if they knew it, they've forgotten it. Maybe you forgot this. And that's why so many people are lost in the vast ocean of humanity, feeling insignificant and trying to add anything more that they can to their life to improve their standing. But if there's one thing the celebrities of our world keep telling us by their lives and by their deaths, more is never enough. It never will be. Only God can make a life add up. And so it's up to us to share this amazing truth. This is the message of Christmas. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So I would encourage you to use the days leading up to Christmas Eve to invite the people that God puts in your path that God has put in your life, to invite them to join us on Christmas Eve. And if you find yourself sinking into sadness this Christmas, I would encourage you, get yourself to Psalm 139 and read through these first 18 verses. Sit down and read through these and let God speak to you about how much he loves you and your tremendous value. Let's pray. Father, we admit that David says he, he knows this full well, but we often have forgotten this. And we've joined the stampede of this world, scrambling after more of many different kinds, trying to ease the pain that we might feel inside, to rise above, to feel significant. It's as if we have a memory of how valuable we are, but we've forgotten why. I thank you for these words from you through David to us. And I pray for everyone in this room, wherever they're at, whatever distant island they may have found themselves on in their own hearts, God, I pray that they would see you and they would see your love your, your great love for them now this would be a season of renewal about the things that are important we pray this now in your name Jesus amen mm -hmm.
Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.